in Joshua chapter 9. We're going to read the text and then we're going to go over it. In, in, a, in this particular chapter, I'm calling it the dangers of deceit. The dangers of deceit. Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when all the kings who were on this side, that is, the western side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea, toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and as Pastor Chuck used to love to say, and the Pepsi-lite. But he, it just brought, just all of a sudden broke up the monotony of reading it. But he would go on. That they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a far country now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We're your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? So they said to him, From a far, very far country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Asheroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey. Go to meet them and say to them, we're your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they're torn. And these garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard <laughs> that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephorah, uh, Berot, Kiriat Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. 
This we will do to them. We will let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we're very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you. And have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them. And delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel. So that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers. For the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. In the place which he would choose even to this day. Remember what we've talked about in this book of Joshua. It becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of the Christian life. We are to occupy Christ. They were to occupy the land. They are occupying the land and the land is full of people who don't want to leave. In the Christian life, sometimes we are full of stuff that doesn't want to leave our lives. And remember what we've already learned is Joshua and the children of Israel have made their way into the promised land. They have defeated both Jericho and Ai or Ai. So think just for a moment. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. The weapons of A.E. were overwhelmed and overcome. But now they're going to face a fresh challenge. The wiles, if you will, of deception and deceit. What I call the wiles of Satan. So in this chapter, the people of Gibeon deceive the leadership of Israel into thinking that they are a distant people living in a far land, who are no threat to Israel or no threat to the God of Israel, no threat to God's plans for victory. So the people of Gibeon will seek to enter into a covenant with Israel. But the foundation of that covenant is going to be based on lies and deception. And so, again, it begs a question. It provokes a question. Can you have a healthy relationship with anyone based on a lie? In this chapter, we see the enemies of God and God's people building a broad coalition to combat the threat of Israel's arrival and occupation of the land. And we shouldn't be surprised that the enemies of God are going to unite in a common plan to impede the people of Israel and to thwart God's plans. But it's not going to come to pass. So, you should ask yourself a question. 
Why was it so easy to deceive the leaders of Israel? And once again, we discover something. The reason why it was so easy to deceive them is in part twofold. Number one, they failed to get guidance from the Lord. And number two, they based their appearance or their decisions on appearance. Remember, we're Christians. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so if you look at this great big world in which we live and you begin to make decisions based simply on what you see, then you run the risk of being deceived. And so there's the deception by the Gibeonites in verses 3 through 15, the discovery of the ruse in verses 16 through 17, and then the decision by the leaders in verses 18 through 27. But let's look again at the first two verses, the enemy's alliance against the people of God. Look what it says. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side, that's the western side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowlands and in the coastals or the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Jebusites being, of course, the people who live in and around Jerusalem, heard about it that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and with Israel in one accord. Here we see this group of people uniting together in order to fight a common enemy. The people of the land were divided among a, a number of, of nation states. These were tribal peoples. And so when it talks about kings, it's talking about independent sovereign groups of people who for the most part disliked each other, hated each other, warred with one another. But they are willing to come together to unite against what they perceive to be the common threat of Israel. Now, one of the things that we should remember is that the enemy's alliance is forged during the time when Israel has consecrated themselves and dedicated themselves in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in the last chapter, in chapter 8, verses 33 35. Picture in your mind the children of Israel are in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim renewing their covenant and their commitment to the Lord. Remember they're shouting across the valley the promises and the curses. They've offered sacrifices. Well, they built an altar in chapter 8 verse 30. They offered sacrifices in verse 31 of chapter 8. They inscribed a permanent memorial to the word of God. That is, they wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. They placed the ark of the covenant in the middle of the camp in verse 33 of chapter 8. All the words of the law, the blessings, the cursings, according to that which was written in the book of the law in verse 34. So I want you to just pause for a moment and think. When there is this glorious, glorious revival, renewal, commitment taking place in their lives, the enemies of God are uniting together 
in order to thwart the plans. And it becomes, again, a type and a picture for us. Because sometimes it's in those moments of renewal and revival and recommitment that, again, the enemies of God join forces. And so don't be surprised if all hell breaks loose. That the world and the flesh and the devil unite together in order to try and keep the plans and purposes of God from coming true in your life. And so the alliance of the coalition of the forces of the Hittites, the Amorites, here's part of the point. We can get into who they are and, and, and what it all means later on, but here's part of the point that I want to draw attention to. That when they combine together, their resources are formidable. They are determined. They are opposed. They're going to offer strong resistance against the people of God. And one of the key concepts, again, is that this united opposition is towards the people of God. This isn't simply a group of people who are defending their homes. This isn't just a group of people who go, hey, look, we live here. We have families. We have wives. We have children. This is where we live. This is where we belong. This is our future. You would be making a serious mistake if you stopped there. The reason why you would be making a serious mistake is that this is a group of people who are opposed to the person of God, to the plan of God, to the will of God, and to the people of God. This is a group of people determined to have their own way, absent God, absent the promises of God. The reason why we know this is because there's an underlying theme. And the underlying theme is these are people who have already heard about who God is and what God has done in Egypt, in liberating them, in the miracles and the plagues that took place, in the supernatural occurrences, in the overwhelming victories that have been given. And so, think for a moment. They had a chance to make other decisions, other choices. They've heard about the God of Israel. They've heard about his power. They've heard about his might. They know that God is at work, and they are determined to resist God. This becomes important for each and every one of us on so many different levels. Because Paul would later warn the Corinthians to avoid alliances with evil. In chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, you're all familiar with the passage. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And Paul also warns them, come out from among them. Be ye separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. He's quoting Numbers chapter 33, verse 51. So Paul gives a series of warnings about marriage, about business, about church, about intimate relations. Separation means making a clean break from the world. 
and embracing the Lord. Separation means we don't love the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We're, we're in the world, but we're not to have fellowship with it. We're not to have fellowship with those who persist in sin. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. We're to cultivate Christ-like character in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. So the Bible teaches that the Christian life is a battle, but it's also a blessing. And so the enemies concoct a strategy of deception and lies. Look again at what it says in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done at Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. There's two groups of people. There's a group of people who want to unite and fight against Israel. It becomes a type and a picture of all of the people who want to unite and fight and impede you from the life that God has called to, to you in Christ. Now there's also a group of people who don't necessarily want to fight. They don't necessarily want to fight, but they also don't necessarily want to die. And so they're going to engage in deception. In verse 4, where it says they worked craftily, it's a very interesting word. It's used in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, to describe, now among all of the wild animals that were in the creation of God, there was this crafty serpent. Same word. They are pretending to be ambassadors, and they're going to provide clever proofs and evidence in order to confirm their deception. And so in verse 6, they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal. They said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, mm, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? Now think about the question because it's a great question. How do we know that you're telling us the truth? How do we know that you aren't just a group of people who are already living in the, the land? How indeed are we to tell whether or not you are a friend or a foe? How can we enter into an ill-advised contract or covenant or a promise when we've already made a promise to God? The question is a call. For proof of identity. Proof of intention. And note how the people of Gibeon are called Hivites. Remember this is a group of people who are, who are mentioned in verse 1. Some scholars believe that these might be a group of people who were in what's called Anatolia or modern Turkey. That there was a vast empire because the Gibeonites have a council of elders. Most of the nation states were ruled by a king. And so they clearly have cultures, custom, and language 
that is far, far away, and it helps in the ruse. They're, they're a part of a broad coalition that opposes Israel, but the people of Gibeon were aware of the crushing defeats of the walled city of Jericho. They were aware of the courageous community of Ai. They were aware that walls did not prevent them from going forward and weapons did not prevent them from going forward. And so they're going to use another strategy. And it becomes, again, a type and a picture of the Christian life because for the Christian, often brute force doesn't work to dissuade the Christian from his or her call. In other words, if someone pushes you against the wall, if someone slaps you or imprisons you and says, you can't be a Christian, you can't read your Bible, you can't pray, you can't go to church, what would happen in our country if all of a sudden there was a law that said, you can't be a Christian anymore? There might be a group of people who said, let's just see about that. There might be a group of people who say, you're right, I didn't really want to be a Christian anyway. But brute force doesn't always work. But deceit can be very, very powerful. And so the people of Gibeon are going to employ a strategy of deceit. In verse 8 it says, but they said to Joshua, where are your servants? And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where did you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country your servants have come because of the name and note this is important because of the name of the Lord your God for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt think carefully for just a moment if they are aware of who the God of Israel is if they are aware of all of the information that's contained in the book of Exodus, if they are aware of the plagues and the promises and the miracles, do they have some idea who this God is? I think that the answer is yes. So think about it just for a moment. They lie about where they're from. They lie about who they are. And they're not afraid to invoke God's name in order to reinforce the lie. And you might be thinking, people wouldn't really do that, would they? I mean, a person wouldn't come into your life and pretend to be a Christian, pretend to love the Lord, pretend to believe the Bible, pretend that everything in the Bible is true. Nobody would do anything like that to you, right? And I think you know the answer. There are people who will misrepresent themselves to get what they want from you. And so, they wrap the lie of who they are and where they're from in religious language. They talk about honoring the Lord. They lie about honoring the Lord. Now, they said, we've come because of the name of the Lord your God. This lie is based on a claim. We've heard about God. We've heard about what God did for you. We've heard about the power and the 
testimony of God towards the people of Israel. And then in verse 10 it says, And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who were at Ashtaroth. You'll note that they cleverly leave out understanding of what's happened at Jericho and understanding of what's happened at Ai. Because to do so is going to give away the ruse or the lie. So the people of Gibeon live about 25 miles from where Israel is encamped at Gilgal in verse 6. So they said, we're from a place far away, about 25 miles. But they don't say that. By the way, Gibeon was called a royal city, a fortress city. Scholars, archaeologists believe that Gibeon was larger than A.E. or A.I. In other words, this is one of the royal cities, one of the fortress cities. We know that they were known for their fierce fighters because look right ahead just briefly at chapter 10, verse 2. It says that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than A.E. and all of its men were mighty. So we're talking about a, a city that's larger, better fortified, with a reputation for ferocity. And so, it says, and, that, and, that is, and that's one of the reasons believers aren't to be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. It's because, again, in the plans and the purposes of God, the Lord has made it clear they weren't to enter into any peace treaties. Now, again, I need you to think this through. I'm going to suggest to you that these people, for reasons that we don't necessarily know why, are aware that Israel has the opportunity and even command from God to enter into treaties and covenants with people who live outside of the land. They also have reason to believe that when Moses said all of the people who are in the land are going to have to leave, that the, is, that the children of Israel really believe that, that it's true, and that it applies to them. And again, this is the reason why believers aren't to be unequally yoked. Is it possible that when you meet someone in business or in relationship or in whatever it is that you happen to be involved in, they know that you're a Christian. They know that you go to church. They know that you read your Bible. They know that you act because you say you love the Lord and you want to live for him and you love him and you want to serve him. They'll, they'll say to you, you know, I, I understand that you're a Christian. <laughs> I understand that you love God and I understand that you believe that the Bible is true and I respect that. And for whatever reason, you refuse to say, but do you believe that? Do you embrace that? Do you want that? In verse 11, it says, Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We're your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. The people of Gibeon represent the lies and deceptions that people are willing to employ to ensure their own survival. And 
patiently undermine the plans that God has for you. So what else do they lie about? They lie about their prestige and their importance. They claim to be ambassadors. They claim that they're willing to serve. We are your servants. In verse 12, it says, This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Joshua says, who are you? This is who we are. Where do you come from? This is where we come from. What do you offer as evidence that you are who you say that you are and you'll do what you say that you you will do? Here's what we're going to offer as evidence. We're going to offer moldy bread, torn wineskins, and old clothes. Do you know why this becomes, again, an important thing? When you lie about your food and you lie about your clothes and you lie about the cracked wineskins and the worn out sandals. In the midst of their lies, they invite the children of Israel to accept as evidence what they see for themselves in order to confirm their story. Here's what they're doing. They're inviting the children of Israel to make a decision based on appearances. And so much of your life will be the same. Often people will come into your life and they'll ask you to make decisions based on appearances. They'll say, trust your eyes, trust what you see, trust what you hear. And look at the tragic weakness of God's people in the face of this deception. In verse 14, it says, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Where have we seen this in the text before? A.E., piece of cake. We're not going to need to, we don't need to seek God's will. We don't need to seek God's face. We don't need to seek God's power and provision. These are people that we can handle for ourselves. Now, you would think that they would have learned this lesson to not go forward absent the care, the guidance, the plan of God. But does it sound familiar to you as well? How is it that we find ourselves repeatedly following or falling into the same pattern of behavior? It says... So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to the cities on the third day. Now think about this. The truth was about three days away. Now, their cities were Gibeon, Cheferah, Be'rot, and Kiryat Jerim. 
Why were the leaders of Israel so vulnerable to deception? We already know the answer. In verse 14, the men of Israel didn't ask counsel of the Lord. Prayer imparts wisdom according to James chapter 1 verse 5. Prayer brings peace according to Philippians chapter 4 verse 5. Prayer keeps us from sin according to Matthew 26 41. Prayer reveals the will of God, Luke chapter 11 verse 9. Prayer defeats the devil according to Luke 22 32. Prayer provides us with the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God. So the first reason was their willingness, again, to trust their own perceptions. They judged according to appearance. They trusted their own wisdom. They trusted their own instincts. They don't ask counsel and guidance from the Lord. That, do I have to say out loud what you already know? This becomes a type and a picture of when we are most vulnerable to being had, to being deceived, to being taken advantage of. The failure to pray and trust our own wisdom makes us vulnerable to pain, hurt, suffering, deception. A refusal to seek God's heart and God's will and examine God's word makes us vulnerable to deception. A refusal to walk in God's spirit makes us vulnerable to deception. Previous victories and experiences of recent dedication do not always ensure that we won't be vulnerable to deception. So, again, repeatedly, when are we most vulnerable to deception? When we trust appearances, when we refuse to consult the Lord, and the Lord desires to lead us and guide us and reward us. And so few of us are willing to do the very simple thing. Bow our head, close our eyes, open our hearts, and simply ask the question, Lord, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? What is your will? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I trust you to guide me in the circumstance that I find myself in? The Lord desires to lead us. There's not a reluctance on the part of God to provide for us. In James, when it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him or her ask of God who gives to each person generously. In the old King James, it says, and upbraideth not. It's an old expression, which means not willing to hold out on you. God isn't being stingy. God wants to be generous. He wants to communicate with you and share with you and lead you and guide you. And Satan is a liar. And Satan is the father of lies. 
You know, it's interesting, Blaise Pascal, who my friend Doug Grotei says is a person who is often quoted and rarely read, made this troubling statement. He said, quote, we like to be deceived. And when you first hear that statement by Blaise Pascal, we like to be deceived, we automatically balk against it until we remember Jeremiah chapter 17, which says that the heart In verse 2, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. Who can know it? Satan targets our mind and our bodies and our will and our heart and our conscience. Satan's weapons include lies and suffering and pride and accusation. Satan's purposes include to make us ignorant of God's will or impatient with God's will or to try to get us to act independent of God's will. Because if we will act independent of God's will... We invite the discipline of God or the judgment of God. So our defenses include the inspired word of God and the imparted grace of God and the indwelling spirit of God. And then the intercession of the son of God. And you might be reading this passage and go, but wait a minute. You've already said that the relationship in the covenant is based on a lie. And if promises are made based on lies, we don't have any obligation to keep promises based on lies, do we? What now? What will Joshua do? What can we do when we discover that we've been lied to, when we've been had, when we've been taken advantage of? Look what it says. A necessary correction to overcome deception and lies. Look what happens in verse 18. And it's a, we're going to go through it quickly. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said, To all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all of the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us. Now, therefore, you're cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Their reason is, If we don't, we're going to die. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you. And have done this thing. And now, here we are in your hands. Do with us as what seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. I want you to note what's happening in the text. Throughout the passage, there's this repetition of something that we might be tempted to overlook. It's, we made a promise to God. 
We made a covenant with God. We swore on the basis of God. Over and over again, Joshua and the leaders said, we made a promise, a covenant to honor and obey God's word. Now think about this for just a moment. Particularly when you enter into relationships, fellowships, you are unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And the, the unbeliever lies to you and deceives you. You go into the relationship on the basis of what you think is the truth. And they go into the relationship with the basis of a lie. Knowing that you'll stay with them. Because even though they won't keep their word, you'll keep yours. Now this becomes very important. The rulers of the congregation swore to them by the Lord God of Israel. They took an oath. They entered into the covenant in verse 18. And you'll note that the people complained against the rulers. They complained probably because they're not going to be able to take the booty and the loot um, that would have otherwise been available to them. But you'll note also allowing the Gibeonites to live meant that its riches wouldn't necessarily be available to the people of Israel. The leadership didn't want to incur God's wrath and judgment by breaking their vow. Think about this for just a moment. In their way of thinking is we made a covenant and a promise with God. If we break the covenant and the promise that we made with God, we incur God's judgment and God's wrath. The leaders made plans for dealing with the deception by subjecting the deceivers to a lifestyle of servitude, of the most base sort, gathering wood, tasks of slaves, Joseph or Joshua then proceeds to rebuke the deceivers and to make provisions to guard against further deception in verse 22. All of this is important. The people of Gibeon feared for their lives in verse 24. They willingly agree to surrender and serve the people of Israel rather than be destroyed by the angry armies of Israel. So what happened? Because their servant, they become servants in the tabernacle. Now again, even this becomes important. Because of their deception and their deceit and their lifestyle of idolatry, Joseph is going to place them in a position where they are surrounded, if you will, by the tabernacle of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the praises and the prayers of the people of God. And so the passage provides us clues of what to do when we're the victims of deceit. The first clue that's given to us is a recognition that we have to own up to our role in the deceit, our participation in the con. We have to be willing to admit that maybe we didn't seek God's guidance. Maybe we didn't pray. Maybe there is something going on and that we played a role in the deception. What else? We keep our word. We honor our commitments. Another way you might think about this, again, is it's a commitment not just to keep our word, but to protect and honor the word of God, the gospel of God, the name of Jesus. In other words, it isn't just simply about us. 
One of the early lessons I learned early on in the midst of this kind of trying circumstance when you've been a victim of deceit, you've been taken advantage of by less than scrupulous people. It's to own up to your role in the deception. Because there was something way more important than the deception brought by the people of Gibeon. And that is whether or not the children of Israel are going to be loyal to the Lord and remind the deceivers that the, that the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, the God who delivered them out of Egypt is a God who loves truth and honors truth. He is a God who keeps his word. And if God is a God who keeps his word, is it safe to say that the God who keeps his word should have followers who keep their word? Even the unbelieving Gibeonites were trusting that that would be true. To dishonor God's name by breaking the treaty again would invite God's judgment and wrath. And so what do you do? What do you do if you've been the victim of lies and deceit? First thing, ask and answer the question of your role. Second thing, honor God. Honor God. Honor God and honor God's word. The next step is to overcome the lies and the deceit. In order to avoid judgment, the children of Israel's loyalty didn't lie simply with the Gibeonites or even the covenant, but rather the God of the covenant. The Gibeonites are beneficiaries of the children of Israel's willingness to say, I promised God, I made a covenant with God, and I'm going to honor that covenant. And the third step to overcome the deception and the lies was to rebuke the liars and then guard against further deception. And so even in this particular point, even though they've made a terrible mistake, they refused to get guidance from God. They looked at the appearances of things. They were now saying, look, whatever we did wrong in the past and however it has all worked out for us, there's a couple of things we need to do. Number one, we have to own up to our own responsibility in it. We have to honor God. And we have to confront the lie. And then put in place some mechanism to avoid further deception. Joshua then rebukes them publicly in verse 22. He executes judgment on the deceivers in verse 23. They're assigned to menial task. They're put in a position of subordination in verse 23. Their lies proved that they were enemies of God. Not friends, enemies. When your husband lies to you, when your wife lies to you, when your boss lies to you, when your government lies to you <laughs> and says, but I'm your friend, <laughs> you need to remind them that friends can't have a relationship based on deceit. And one of the mechanisms after the con confrontation 
one of the things that Joshua does to guard against future deception and evil influence is to make them servants in the temple or the tabernacle. In other words, what is their job? It's to provide support in the worship center, in the presence of God. What will that do? It will keep them from spreading their lies. What else will it do? It will cause them to abandon their false gods. What else will it do? It will expose them to the word of God and the worship of God and the promises of God. And so if you're wondering, if you're wondering about, if you're a mom and a dad and you go, you know what, my children don't want to go to church and they don't want to read their Bible, they see it as punish them, punishment. Punish them then. See, you, you might, we, we laugh at it because it sounds so absurd, but guess what? Do you know what's going to be the thing that is going to reign in deception and rebellion? It's a massive dose of the truth and submission and obedience to the things of God. And this is going to result in something amazing. The Gibeonites are eventually going to change. Instead of idolaters, they're going to become worshipers of God. Warren Wearsby points this out, that there's nothing in the scripture that points out that the Gibeonites ever created any more problems for Israel. There are some people who would suggest that that may not be true. They, they say that, hey, look, the Gibeonites brought trouble in chapter 10, verse 4. It is true. There is a bit of trouble because now Joshua's going to have to be forced to protect the people that, that he entered into the arrangement with. But the way that I would put it is, guess what? There's over 500 Gibeonites who returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity in Ezra chapter 2 verse 43. As you follow the Gibeonites into the future, they're doing what they were asked to do, and this would seem to indicate, again, that they followed Israel into the captivity. They return from the captivity, and they come back to the land as worshipers of God. And again, this is one of those circumstances where Joshua is making the best of a very bad situation. He's going to guard against the influ evil influences of the deceit. He's going to make every effort to point these people to the true and living God. And that's exactly what we have to do. You've been victimized by deceit? Make every effort. In the bad circumstance that you may or may not find yourself in, to point people to Jesus. There's so many lessons, it's hard to know where to begin. But let me just give you a couple of quick things as we close. We are most vulnerable to deception after a time of great victory. After a time of personal renewal. After a commitment to Christ. Number two, we are most vulnerable to lies. When we make decisions based on appearance. And number three, we're most vulnerable to lies when we fail to seek God for guidance. So what do we do? If we've heard lies and believed lies or made bad decisions based on lies. The first order of business, 
honor God. Protect, preserve the name of Jesus, the character of God. Avoid God's judgment and wrath by keeping your word. Rebuke the deception. Take steps to guard against future deception. I I, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Did the Gibeonites lie? Yes. Did they lie in order to save their lives? Yes. Is it safe to say that the Gibeonites lied because they, they wanted to be free men? And did their lie make them free men or did it make them slaves? You know the answer. Imagine we decide to make a lie or to believe a lie or engage in a lie or embrace a lie or tell a lie because we think that it's going to save us or give us freedom when all it does is really incarcerate us. But the good news is their curse is going to become a blessing. In what way? Because even though they're cursed by Joshua to be slaves in the sanctuary, by becoming slaves in the sanctuary, they hear about God. They see God. They're exposed to the worship of God and the word of God and the promises of God and the future that God has for his people. And then they become a part of those people. So what's our best defense against lies? The truth. What's the ultimate source for truth? The inspired word of God and also the person of God. What's our best defense when we're facing suffering in part or whole because we live in a broken world or we find ourselves in circumstances where we've paid an awful price for deception? We look to God for guidance, for cleansing, for forgiveness, for faith. So what do we do when Satan rightly accuses us of massive failure? We remember that we have an intercessor, Joshua, Jesus. He stands before the Father and he makes intercession for us and he pleads for us. He asks God to honor his word. He made a promise that if you would trust Jesus, if you'd confess your sin, if you'd turn from your sin, if you'd place your full confidence in Jesus, that you would be accepted by God. Remember what I said earlier? This is the only chapter and the only place where we find Joshua actually saving people. He saves them, even though they came to him on the basis of a lie. Isn't it funny how Jesus is willing to save you? Even though you may have come to him with not entirely pure motives, not entirely a clean record, not entirely okay. But then God 
gives you an opportunity to turn from your sin, to receive Christ as your Savior, and to rely fully, fully, fully on Jesus. We trust Jesus' intercession in order to make us have a right relationship with the Father. Joshua's intercession is going to save the Gibeonites. But the Gibeonites are still going to be a problem in the next chapter. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you again. Lord, we thank you that you've given us ways to think about the plans, the wiles, the schemes, the deceits of of the devil. Lord, we know that Satan uses lies and he attacks our mind. That Satan uses suffering and he attacks our body. That Satan uses pride and he attacks our conscience. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who will avail ourselves of the resources that are available to us. The word of God. The person of Jesus. And his intercession in times of trouble. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. That we don't have to remain in lies. That we can confess our sin. We know that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we, we know that you're a God of truth and that you love the truth and that you love it when we walk in the truth and tell the truth and believe the truth. And so again, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.